The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 3rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Most people, when looking for a new place to live, value safety. When you're looking for a house, you're looking for a neighborhood, you're looking for an apartment, you you want a place that seems safe. And so even search engines today allow you when you're looking for houses or places to live to see crime reports for the places that you're looking at so you can kind of know what the area is like, you know. So imagine my surprise after being in the same house, in the same neighborhood for 15 years to find out that a killer had moved into the neighborhood. Not just into the neighborhood, but on our street and not just on our street, but across the street. And you know, all those databases can give you pictures and you can see exactly what people have done and what they, you know, who they are. Well, here's a picture. I'll show you the public service warning. See if it comes up. There he is right there. His name is Colt. He even sounds like a killer. Before Colt moved in, our neighborhood was full of chipmunks and squirrels and rabbits My kids would sit and watch them eat breakfast while they ate breakfast before school. Colt became fast friends with my dog, and so now he brings chipmunks and rabbits and squirrels as presents to my dog. It's safe to say that if you pulled up to my house and you saw Colt sitting in the tree, regardless of of how much carnage he has wreaked across the neighborhood, you wouldn't take him very seriously. My kids get out and play with him brings string out. He jumps on my dog and chases my dog. They have a good time. But if you pulled up into my neighborhood and you found this guy sitting in my tree, dum, 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 dum. Not Colt, but that guy. You might take him a little more seriously. You might think twice before you got out of your car and made your way to my house. Or at least I think you should. You know, unless you were a squirrel or a chipmunk, Colt, you're not going to bother with. But this guy, you might think twice. And do you know why you'd think twice about getting out of your car if this guy's sitting in my tree? Why you might take him more seriously than you would take Colt? It's because of this thing we call domestication. Domestication is the process of adapting wild animals for human use. Of taking that which was once wild and and uncontrollable, so to speak, that we took with great seriousness and finding ways to control it, to use it for our own comfort, oftentimes like our own pets, our own service, like certain animals, to to work for us, to produce for us. But here's the thing, in all seriousness, domestication is, is one thing when it comes to animals. The trouble that we get into is when you and I begin to think that we can domesticate God. That there's a way in which we can put God to our service and our use for our end. And here's the thing, we have a hard time. If you're really honest with yourself for a moment this morning, we have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that God cannot and will not be domesticated by us. In fact, again, if you're really honest with yourself, you and I are still learning the same lesson that God has been teaching his people for centuries. And so this morning, as we, as we work our way through 1 Samuel chapter 4, 
maybe by God's grace, the penny will drop for some of us this morning. God will not be domesticated. God will not allow you and I to rob from him his glory. Let's pick up the story and see, God, see how God teaches his people this lesson then. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. The writer reminds us that Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So just to set it up for you because this story is shifting a bit, we've spent the first three chapters learning about the birth of this man named Samuel of whom the book is named, about his mom Hannah and his life in his early years contrasted against the evil of the high priest and his sons Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas who had shown contempt for God and his sacrifices and who had led God's people in tremendous sin. And so here in chapter 4, the story is going to take a little bit of a turn. So chapters 4, 5, and 6, first couple of verses of chapter 7, all take a, a different turn before we get back to Samuel. We're here focused on these people called the Philistines. Now this is the first of 184 times you're going to hear about the Philistines in 1 Samuel. The Philistines were a, a seafaring people that settled on the coast of Palestine around the 12th century B.C., History records them as some of the earliest adopters and masters of metalwork, which means their weapons, especially their iron chariots, were renowned throughout the land. No one else had them. They were hard workers. They were hard fighters. They were fierce warriors. And they set up five major city-states along the coast of the Mediterranean in Palestine. One of those was a, a city-state called Aphek. That is where they're encamping right now. Now, if you were in Aphek and you went due west, about 20 miles, you would reach Shiloh. That's where the center of Israelite worship was. That's where we've been the last few weeks. That's where the tabernacle is. So the Philistines are about to make their way towards Shiloh. And in between Shiloh and Aphek is Ebenezer. That's where the Israelites are camped. So a great battle is about to take place. And for those of you that like to go and study history and like to figure out the chronology of how things happened, here's a little aside for you. We'll come back to it in a few weeks, but you can go read for now. You can read the story of 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6 and the first part of 7 and lay over it the story of Samson from the Judges. Most historians believe in the chronology of the stories that Samson and Samuel were contemporaries. And that we don't know here in 1 Samuel why this battle is about to take place. But scholars have good reason to think that the Philistines are, are encroaching upon Shiloh in response to one of Samson's early antics. So we'll come back to that later as we get in the story. But if you like to read that stuff, you can overlay Samson and these stories in 1 Samuel right here as happening about the same time. Just in different parts of Israel. So a battle is about to take place. Here we go. Verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now here, listen, the elders of Israel made a correct assessment. They did not say, how have the Philistines defeated us, or that we were defeated by the Philistines. They said that we were defeated before the Philistines because they understood the sovereignty of God over even things like these battles. They understood in the cycle of the way that God had worked with his people throughout the period of the judges when this story was taking place, that God's people would give themselves over to the idols of the nations and the lands. They would give their hearts and their lives over to the foreign lands there. God, in his judgment of them, would give them over to those people. 
And they would find themselves subjected in exile or slavery to the people of the lands until they began to cry out. And when they would cry out, God would listen. He would raise up a judge who would deliver them out of that slavery or out of that exile. And they would return to the Lord only to repeat the cycle again. So here God's people have been soundly defeated by the Philistines. We know the way the process has worked in the life of God's people in this period of time. That because of their sin, God handed them over to these great defeats. How do they respond? Well, they rightly understand that it was God who allowed them to be defeated. But yet, wouldn't you expect for them in understanding that to say, what have we done? Wouldn't you expect for them at the the hands of the Philistines, killing 4,000 of their men in such great defeat, realizing how God had worked with them in the past to go, what have we done? And cry out to the one true God who had called them to himself for mercy and for rescue? They've heard, we've already seen in the story, the word of the Lord through Samuel has gone out to all of Israel. They know God's judgment on Eli and his sons for their sin. They know how God sees the sin of the priests who have led God's people in such unholy practices. They know it's coming. And here they're defeated by the Philistines. Wouldn't you expect them to realize what is happening and to cry out to the one who has saved them and protected them? Well, repentance wasn't on their mind. Rather, for the elders of Israel and their little exercise of groupthink, they came to a different solution. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. See, they saw the problem with having been defeated by the Philistines not as a sin problem, but a tactical problem. They said, oh, wait a minute. Way back in the old days, I remember when God led the people through the wilderness by a cloud during the day and fire at night, he told them for the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant out in front of the people to go wherever they were being led. And when they got to Jericho, God told the priests to carry the Ark of Covenant in front of the people as they walked around the walls before the walls fell down. Oh, wait a minute. When they crossed into the land that God gave them, God told the priests to carry the Ark in front of them so when they stepped in the Jordan River, it stopped flowing. They could cross into the land God had given them. Oh, that's how God works. The problem is we just forgot the Ark. The bigger problem being for another story in another time is that in all those previous instances, God had told them where to go. God had told them what battle to engage in. God had told them how to do it. The Israelites here seem to be fighting a battle that God didn't call them to. That's another sermon for the church for another day. But they assess this problem and go, oh, we forgot to bring the Ark. And for those of you who aren't super familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was a four-by-two box of wood made of acacia wood. It was lined outside and inside, covered entirely in gold. That ark would go sit in the Holy of Holies, the innermost place of the tabernacle, where only the high priest could go once a year during the the offering of atonement, where he would sprinkle the blood on the lid of the ark. We'll talk about that in a minute. That was the place where the presence and the glory of God dwelled amongst his people. Inside that ark were the tablets of stone, where God had spoken his word and spoken his promises to his people, where he had written them by his own hand on those tablets, reminders of God's word, reminders of God's law, reminders of God's covenant for his glory and their joy inside that ark. Inside the ark was a jar full of manna, the bread by which God had given his people when they wandered in the wilderness, reminding them of his past provision, his promise to always be for them, to care for them, to give them what they needed. Inside that ark, along with the tablets of stone and the little jar of manna, was Aaron's staff that had budded, 
reminding God's people not only again of his presence, but of his protection and of his leadership towards them. And on top of that ark was a lid made of solid gold. And on each end of the lid, there was a sculpture of a, of a cherubim, an angel with his wings outstretched so that the outstretched wings on both sides formed a seat or a throne over the top of the box. It was called the mercy seat. It was where the high priest would go in during the offering of atonement, the feast of atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat right there in the ark itself, reminding God's people of the promise and the grace and the provision of forgiveness that God had made for his people of atonement. Right there, the ark was a, was a physical reminder, a physical picture of all the characteristics and the attributes of the God who had rescued his people and called them to himself. The speaking, providing, protecting, leading, forgiving one. Right there in the ark. The ark, it reminded God's people not just of his presence with them, but of his glory. His weightiness. You see, glory comes from the same Hebrew word as weight. God's glory was his weightiness. The seriousness with which he was to be taken. The ark was a, a physical picture of the fullness of who God had revealed himself to be to his people. It was a reminder of his weight and of his glory. A reminder of the seriousness with which they were to take him. So they decide they've lost because, wait a minute, the ark, it's not with us. And so go back to the story. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. They gave it a big fancy name. They were super confident in what they were doing. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now at this point, if you've been with us in the story, you ought to be going, uh, uh-oh. <laughs> we know about those guys. They quite literally are dead men walking. God had already said they're going to die, and they're going to die on the same day. They're worthless men showing zero, zero weight to the reality of who God is, and they're carrying the ark into the crowd? You should begin thinking to yourself, this might not go so well. Verse 5 says, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's an amazing scene. I don't know how you read the Bible, if you try to picture it in your mind, if you close your eyes, but you just got to imagine this scene. They've been soundly defeated. They come to the conclusion that we just forgot to do something, that God works a particular way, so we got to go back and get the ark and get it in here. When the ark gets here, the whole place goes crazy. These worthless, shameless men carrying the ark of God's covenant before the people if having been soundly defeated by God at the hands of the Philistines wasn't enough to provoke them into repentance, certainly physically seeing the ark, that which no one apart from the high priest was actually going to see at that point, that reminder of God's presence and God's glory and his holiness, of his protection, of his provision, of his word, of the righteous demands required, of the promise of sacrifice and forgiveness that God gave his people, that physical reality, surely that coming into their presence, having never seen it before, that would provoke them. Woe is me. What have we done? Save us. But it doesn't seem like anybody seems to be bothered by these despicable priests bringing the Ark of God's Covenant into the presence of his people. And no one seems to be thinking at all what God might be thinking about this whole thing. 
They should have taken God as seriously as he deserved to be taken. But no one seemed to mind what was happening. So Israel felt tremendously confident. And yet something else was happening in the camp of the Philistines. Look at verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They knew the stories. They did not want to face the power of the God associated with the people from Israel. Their spies had seen this ark coming in and came back and saw that thing. And at this point, the Philistines, realizing who they were going to go to battle with, regardless of how they thought about the God of the Israelites, they didn't want to deal with it. And at this point, the writer writes it in such a way that even the Philistines are realizing that they're not going to win this next round. Yet wise or foolish, however you determine it, based on what they believed about this God who came into the camp, they decided to respond in verse 9, they say, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. They're not going to be taken into slavery easily. So they face the fear in front of them, determined not to surrender. And in verse 10, it says, The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Now, it takes two people to fight, doesn't it? The writer writes this in a specific way. The people who were so confident, they shouted so loud, so, so assured of victory that the earth shook, don't seem to put up much of a fight. The Philistines are the ones who came out swinging. And Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So right here on one level, on one level in this larger story, this part of the narrative reminds God's people that none of God's words are going to fall to the ground. That God is a promise-keeping God. Israel brought that ark into the battle thinking that it was the key to victory. And God uses that misguided notion as the means of fulfilling his word. Their sin served God's purpose. He had promised that Hophni and Phinehas were going to die and they were going to die on the same day. And Israel's sin right here is the means by which God brought that to bear. He keeps his word. But what? What was the sin? What did they do? What was Israel doing that God worked through to bring his word to pass? Well, Israel had begun to believe that they could domesticate God. Israel had begun to believe that they could put God in their service. That they could use God for their purposes in their ways. But here's the thing. God will never be a means to their end or your end. Tim Chester, who's a great pastor in, in London, wrote a wonderful little commentary on 1 Samuel. And trying to, to understand how this works in our own lives and our own hearts. Chester said that God will not be treated by you or I like a waiter or a waitress at our favorite restaurant. When you go sit down to dinner with friends or family at a restaurant, you never ask the waiter or waitress to sit down and be a part of your life, do you? You only seek their attention when you want something. 
or when you need something. And some of you, he said, are pretty rude about that. He said, when you and I begin to take God lightly, when our hearts fall prey to the deception that we can domesticate God and put him in our service, it looks much the same way. He's not much a part of our life. But we think he should be there when we snap our fingers because we decided there's something that we need or something that we want. And he's the means by which we think we can get it. You see, because Israel had been taking God lightly, their trust, their faith, their hope shifted to an it rather than a who. Did you catch what they said? This is the essence of domestication, removing the weightiness or the seriousness with which God deserves to be treated. They called for the ark. They called for the box that it might come and save us. That's what it says, that it might come and save us, not that God might hear our cries for mercy and rescue us. When the ark showed up, they should have seen the demands of God's righteousness right there and cried out to him for mercy and salvation. But they were more interested in success than repentance. They were more given over to religion rather than a relationship with the one true God. And the reality of it is we're not much different. If you're here this morning and you've been wondering, what... What's the deal with this whole essence of Christianity and its dependence upon Jesus? Here it is right in the story. Friends, just as it was true for Israel then, it's true for us today. There is no it by which you and I can be saved. There is no outward form of behavior, no pattern of religion, no moral code that you could adhere to by which you could be saved when you stand before the one true living God and have to give an account for your days here on earth. No one is saved by an it. We are only saved by a who. We're saved by the one to whom the ark actually points. The ark is a brilliant pointer to Jesus. Jesus, the one, the only one who fulfilled God's holy law perfectly. Jesus, the one who provided the means of cleansing through his own blood. Jesus, the one through his own death and resurrection, made it possible for God's presence and favor to dwell with us now through our union with him. You see, friends, biblical faith, as opposed to our own efforts at domesticating God and putting to him to our service, biblical faith is that which comes to God in humility, confessing sin, trusting in the shed blood of Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. We don't need an ark anymore. The Indiana Jones quest for the lost ark of God is foolish because the ark has been fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. But here's the thing. Just like it was true of Israel then, it can be true of you and I today. Our faith, our hope, our trust can very easily shift from a who to an it. Our faith, our hope, our trust in this life can shift very easily from a who to an it. All of the ways that you and I find ourselves falling prey to thinking that we can somehow domesticate God and put him in our service, that we can somehow figure out a way to systematize something of his character and his nature and the way that he works amongst his people, package it in such a way that we can convince ourselves if we just do this in this particular way, then we can be guaranteed of God's presence and God's favor and God's power towards us. 
all the ways that we take our cues for how we're supposed to live this life, how we work, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we live, we take from the world around us because they seem reasonable to us and then we just wrap them up in a bunch of verses about God. This is the bane of so much current Christian publishing. It's simply an effort of trying to domesticate God and put him and his character and his nature in the service of the life we want because the world around us tells us what we're supposed to have. Friends, this is nothing but taking God lightly. It's nothing but a reflection of our hope and our faith shifting from a who to an it. Liberal scholar Donald McCullough, not even one of the more conservative guys, a a liberal guy out in San Francisco, he nailed the danger of this for the church when he talked about the domestication and the trivialization, is what he calls it, of God and our approach to even loving our neighbor as ourselves. Listen to what he said. He said, what can happen is this. Instead of serving God by working for a just cause, we serve a just cause by using God. The cause pushes God aside. The the divine end becomes simply a useful means and God gets trivialized or domesticated. With the best of motives, we throw... This is a tremendous sentence. Just listen to this. I'll go slow. With the best of motives, we throw golden rings and bracelets of passionate concern into the fire. And a calf appears to lead the way to the promised land of social righteousness. If God is brought in secondarily, after the problem and the solution have been defined, it's exactly what Israel did. If God has been brought in secondarily after the problem and the solution have been defined, oppression, political or economic liberation, that will invariably shape our image of God. We may view God, for example, as simply an aid to fulfilling our human aspiration or simply big help for what is essentially a human struggle for self-improvement. Seeing salvation from any other God will come to grief, for a God pressed into the service of a particular cause will be a God too trivial to offer significant help to anyone. Friends, that is the very thing Israel was doing. It's the very same sin we find ourselves in danger of repeating. And it all starts by taking God too lightly having begun to domesticate him in our own heart. Michael Horton, great book, Christless Christianity, he said it's not heresy as much as silliness that is killing us softly. God's not denied. He's simply trivialized, used for our own life programs rather than received, worshipped, and enjoyed. Friends, 1 Samuel reminds us now as it reminded God's people then, you cannot domesticate God and you cannot control him for your own purposes. I mean, Hannah already told us that in her story, in her sermon. When Hannah preached in 1 Samuel chapter 2 about the one true incomparable God who flips the script of human life however he sees fit, she reminded us it's dangerous, not just foolish, but dangerous to think that you can put this God to your service, that he exists for your agenda. You and I cannot domesticate God not just that, the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 4 is going to help us remember the lesson that you and I cannot rob God of his glory. What was played out on a national level in the beginning, it's played out on a personal level in the end. Look at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. He was mourning. That's the sign of mourning. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. 
When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so he couldn't see. So Eli couldn't see that he was mourning. So he couldn't tell what was happening. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli said, how did it go, my son? I don't know why he asked that question. It seems somewhat obvious to me, but I'm not in Eli's situation. He who brought the news answered, said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. God had not let his word fall to the ground. This was ultimately expected by Eli. The judgment had been confirmed by two witnesses. He had watched his sons go out into the area of battle, the priests carrying the ark out there. To some degree, this was expected, but what I don't think Eli was ready for is what came next. Your sons are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. That was too much for his heart to bear. And I don't know if I'm reading into it, so I'm going to step over here because I might be reading into it. But I have to wonder if Eli had ever given himself the opportunity to consider just how far-reaching the consequences of his sin and the the sin of his sons was really going to be to the people of Israel. He, He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew what was going to happen to his sons. He knew the judgment of God on his whole house down the road, but the people. You and I are given to the same reality, aren't we? My sin is mine. My sin is manageable. My sin is controllable. I can contain it. Hearing what happened to the ark was too much for Eli. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. That's the end for Eli. No other mention in the entire story that he had ever served as a judge. Probably no battle God had used Eli to lead God's people out of. It's also not the only neck that's going to be broken in the story. You have to come back next week for that one. But Eli's demise had happened one step at a time. One compromise at a time. He had taken God too lightly for too long. But the story goes on. Look at verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for pains came upon her. So she heard the news, she heard the devastation, she was pregnant and she went into labor. The fear, the anxiety, the overwhelming reality of it, it put her in labor. And then verse 20, you don't get any details, but verse 20, and about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have born a son. So she's gonna die in labor, going into labor, having to hear the devastating news. But she didn't answer or pay attention. Maybe her last words, we don't know for sure. Verse 21 says she named the child Ichabod. Ichabod in Hebrew is a question. Literally, it means where is the glory? She named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Every time someone calls that boy to breakfast, They're saying, where's the glory? Every time they call him in from playing outside, where's the glory? Every time someone speaks his name, it's a physical, audible reminder of the reality of the sin of God's people here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Where is the glory? 
It's an amazing picture the writer weaves for us here. Where is the glory? Well, there's a couple of answers here. Verse 18, the writer reminds us that Eli was heavy. Remember, that was the same root for the word glory, weighty. Eli's sons had spent their entire adult life as the priests of Israel, finding ways to rob God of his glory, of his weightiness. And Eli, he did nothing to stop them. In fact, as we've learned in the last couple of weeks, he actually indulged himself on it. He and his sons did not lead God's people to treat God as weighty or as serious as he deserved. In their efforts to domesticate God in their own hearts and through their own lives, they led God's people to this place. Where's the glory? Well, literally, it's around Eli's waist. For he had spent his life trying to take it from God. But God won't let you carry on a false relationship with him. And what about the ark? That thing that had been the the reminder of God's presence and his glory amongst his people? Well, the ark is now in exile in a foreign land. I mean, that was the very thing God had said would happen to his people when they broke covenant with him. It's the very thing you see happening throughout the entire cycle of the judges. God's people end up in exile because of their sin. But here, it's not his people going into exile. It's God taking upon himself that which his people deserve. You ever heard that motif before? God taking upon himself that which his own people deserve for their sin? Well, you've got to come back next week to figure out how that one works itself out. But where is the glory? It's a great question. The question for you and I is how would you answer it in your own life? Considering the reality of the temptation that we face to continue to try to take God lightly and domesticate God and put him into our own service for our own purposes, where is the glory for you? What in your life, in your heart, would point like Eli's waist to your efforts at trying to put God into your own service? To figure out a way to to systematize God for your own agenda. Where is the glory? Well, if you hear it, the Bible actually has a tremendous answer for the question. John said it this way in John chapter 1. The word... Literally, the word that was on tablets of stone in the ark. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, we've seen his glory. We've seen his weightiness. We've seen his glory. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the weightiness of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Friends, the Bible answers the question for you and I this way. The glory has indeed come. The one to whom the ark pointed has come in Jesus. If ever the glory of God dwelt amongst mankind, it was in the person and work of Jesus. Yet, John reminds us in that chapter that men despised him. Because they loved their sin more. And so they sought to put God's glory to death on the cross. If ever in the history of mankind there was a time when Ichabod could have been proclaimed, it was on the cross. 
If there ever there was a time when where is the glory could have been rightly proclaimed, it was when Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying in our place for our sin. All that the Ark of the Covenant pointed towards, all that it symbolized, God's glory, the way of salvation, the atoning blood, in his death it departed from this world. Where is the glory? Oh, but in his grace... God had already resolved to save his people from their sins. And three days later, he would raise Jesus to new life. Our sin proclaims Ichabod. Where is the glory? The glory has departed. But God's grace answers Emmanuel. The name given to Jesus, God is actually with us. See, friends, though, we rightly deserve to be abandoned by God for our sin. All of our efforts at domesticating God, all of our efforts at trying to put him to work for our agenda, all of the ways we take him less lightly, drain the seriousness and the weight of his glory from our hearts that we might put him to work for us to whatever ends we come up with in our mind. All of the sin that would lead us to domesticate him, we rightly deserve to be abandoned by him for it. But the good news of Emmanuel is that God's forgiveness of us and acceptance of us in his son will never end. God assures us in Jesus of his forgiveness and of our reconciliation with him. He assures us that all of our efforts, continual efforts of giving in to trying to trivialize him and put him to work for us don't separate us any longer from him. He answers our Ichabod with his son, Emmanuel. So that now you and I who have tasted something of the kindness and the goodness of God through faith in his son, we get the privilege in our life now of putting to death this desire in our hearts of trying to domesticate God, of trying to rob God of his glory. We get the privilege by the work of his Holy Spirit to put to death this temptation to put God to our own use for our own agenda. And you and I get the privilege of offering to God what he rightly deserves. You and I on this side of redemptive history get the opportunity to give to God that which he rightly deserves for his glory. You know what that is? I love the way Paul says it to the church in Rome. I'll probably say it a thousand times in the next year or so. Romans chapter 12, verse one. In view of God's mercies. In the panoramic splendor of God's kindness and mercy towards us through his son. What does God deserve from you and I? What is rightly due him as a response to his glory? What is the appropriate response having received his grace? What's the right response to the weightiness of his glory? You and I are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Our whole lives holy and pleasing to God. That, Paul says, is our spiritual act of worship. We don't spend our wheels and our time anymore trying to figure out how to rob God of that which is rightly his for our own purposes. No, we get to reflect something of his grace to a watching world through our dependence and our delight in who he is for us in his son. Friends, you and I, by the work of his spirit, get to put to death this temptation that tries to domesticate God and set him about on our agenda. We get to stop trivializing him. We get to put to death the desire 
to remove from God the seriousness and the weight that truly is his. We get to offer ourselves up, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the one who has called us to himself and given us himself. And not just that. It's not just for you. I, I love the way Richard Phillips says this as we prepare to respond this morning. Philip says there's one more thing about this story you've got to catch. With the gospel message that answers Ichabod with Emmanuel. Where is the glory? Well, God is among us. God now sends you and I out as heralds of his victory over sin with good news of salvation to spread to the world. Since Jesus has come, died for our sins, my thing just died, I can't quote it. He basically goes on to say, we no longer run out from this place to a watching world with news of mourning and sorrow. No, now because of God's grace to you and I through Christ, we run out as heralds of a message of great joy. You and I, having received the kindness of God through the grace he's shown us in his son, get to run out with a message of joy and salvation and forgiveness to the brokenhearted. Unlike the Benjaminite who came back to Shiloh with his clothes torn and ashes and dirt on his head in mourning and sorrow, no. We're the benefactors and recipients of the kindness and grace of God and we get to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him and he sends us out as heralds of such good news. Friends, we cannot domesticate God. He will not allow us to continue in a false relationship with him. He will suffer whatever shame required until you and I realize who he really is. He gives us the opportunity by his grace to live our lives as a response to the fullness of the kindness of his glory that he has shown us in his son. Where is the glory? If you were to answer that for yourself, where, where is the glory? Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Father, we thank you that you help us to see, even in stories like this, that these temptations to sin, they're, they're common amongst centuries. We're not alone in our tendency to think that we can put you in our debt and put you in our service. We're not the first to think that we can somehow manage to, to capture you and, and put you to work for the desires of our heart. We're not the first to fall prey to such a deception. God, help us by your Holy Spirit. We need you to do it. Help us this morning. You know what's standing in the way in every heart in the room. Help us to see the fullness of your glory in your Son. Lord, we have taken you far too lightly for far too long. Some of us have, have minimized your kindness, have minimized your mercy, have minimized the reality of your holiness. We stand in a dangerous place. Lord, help us this morning to see the full weightiness of your glory. Help us to see it in the person and work of your Son. Your kindness that leads us to a tremendous repentance and humility before you. Lord, let us be a people that take you seriously. Let us be a people 
that recognize your glory. Let us be a people who offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices that you might use for your glory and for our joy, for your purposes and your agendas. Lord, we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.